Let's all uh, stand together as we reverence the reading God's Word tonight. We're going to be looking at Joshua chapter 10 and verse 13. Joshua chapter 10, verse 13. And the sun stood still, and the moon stayed, until the people had avenged themselves upon their enemies. Is not this written in the book of Jasher? So the sun stood still in the midst of heaven and hasted not to go down about a whole day. And there was no day like that before it or after it, that the Lord hearkened unto the voice of a man, for the Lord fought for Israel. And may God bless the reading of His Word tonight is my prayer. You may be seated. The longest day, the longest day. You know, sometimes as we go through the book of Joshua, we've noted that uh, uh, when God is moving us into a different direction than we've gone before, moving us along, expanding our horizons, however we want to express it, He's moving us further along in our spiritual journey. And when He does, uh, we're going to find, like the children of Israel, some obstacles uh, that we maybe didn't expect. We're going to find opposition uh, that we weren't prepared for. There's going to be setbacks and failures Decisions and choices will be made, some of them catastrophic in nature, some of them advantageous. Either way, we'll be making choices and decisions that we didn't really anticipate that we'd have to make. And tonight we're going to see that when we are moving along in God's plan for us, we're going to have to deal with the ever-present forces of the enemy. We've seen in many ways the truth of what God said in Philippians chapter 4 and verse 19, and that is that God will supply all of our need according to His riches and glory by Christ Jesus. God has a remarkable way of bringing exactly what we need to bear in our life and in our situation to get us through. Never too much, never, uh, not enough, but always an on-time God, always what we need. God has promised to supply all of our need according to His riches and glory. This passage kind of continues, doesn't kind of really, it does continue. Uh, what we saw last week in the issue of the Gibeonites, you remember in chapter 9 and verse 1, it came to pass when all the kings which were on this side of Jordan, in the hills and in the valleys and in all the coast of the great sea over against Lebanon, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Canaanite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, and the Jebusites heard thereof. that They gathered themselves together to fight with Joshua and with Israel with one accord. Now, this is an alliance that has put themselves together to fight against God's plan and against the armies of Israel. But there was one defector, the Gibeonites. And so Adonazedek, when he'd heard of what they did, the king of Jerusalem sent unto Hoham, king of Hebron, and unto Piram, king of Jarmuth, and unto Japhia, king of Lashish, and said unto Debir, the king of Eglon, saying, Come up unto me and help me, that we may smite Gibeon. For he hath made peace with Joshua and with the children of Israel. And so the response to that was predictable. As the word got around, the Gibeonites were now allies with the people of Israel, with Joshua and with those armies. Well, all the Canaanites decided to attack them. Remember, one of the things that Joshua did in their alliance with the Gibeonites was that they ended up promising to protect them. 
And so in verse 6 of Joshua chapter 10, the men of Gibeon sent unto Joshua to the camp to Gilgal, saying, Slack not thy hand from thy servants. Come up to us quickly and save us and help us. For all the kings of the Amorites that dwell in the mountains are gathered together against us. And I think we can see out of this story tonight a great principle because it's certainly true. That the moment that these alliant forces, the forces of the enemy, the enemies of God and his people, the moment that they heard that the Gibeonites had made peace with the God of Israel and made peace with God's people, they launched a counterattack. I think that's very significant. Now, we'll grant, and we saw that last week, that the Gibeonites' initial approach to Joshua and his people was flawed. They came lying, they came deceiving, but eventually they did what they should have done in the first place. They repented. They pled with God for mercy. They pledged then their belief in the God of Israel. And as always, God's ears are open to the cries of brokenhearted people who cry to him for mercy. That's what they should have done to begin with. And, and that's what they got to. And, and, and so God has responded to that, as he always does. Psalm 34, 18 said, The Lord is nigh unto them that are of a broken heart, and saveth such as be of a contrite spirit. Isaiah 66 and 2, great passage. For all these things hath mine hand made, God said, And all those things have been, saith the Lord. But to this man will I look, even to him that is poor and of a contrite spirit. And trembleth at my word. God says, this is the kind of person I'm looking for. This is what I look for in humanity. Someone who has a poor and contrite spirit. That is, someone who recognizes their spiritual poverty. Someone who is repentant. And somebody who trembles at my word. And that's exactly what the Gibeonites had done. They had heard the word of the Lord. They had heard that God had given his people that land. They saw the greatness and the power of Almighty God, and they trembled. They trembled at the power of God. They got right with him. They might have thought their problems were all over. They were wrong. Because the sinful world that they had once been aligned with was now their mortal enemy. That's one of the great things that we need to watch out for as churches and as individuals, and that is to watch those who make a response to God. Watch those who begin to get right with God. Maybe they say, you know, I need to get back in church. Or maybe they're lost and they say, you know, I need God in my life. And perhaps there are things in their life that are driving them to that decision. And they think, you know, if I get back in church, everything will be fine. Or if I just get saved, everything will be fine. They're mistaken. We know it. We as God's people, we as God's church, me as God's pastors, all of us, we know. We know that the enemy is watching, and he will launch a counterattack almost every single time. And those situations sometimes that drive people to church and that drive them to God, as much as we're thankful for them, as much as we're thankful that they've turned to God, as much as we're thankful that their decision 
has been made. They're going to get right with the Lord. They're going to be saved. They're going to go back in church. We need to be watchful because all the forces of hell are going to break loose in their life. James chapter 4, he told us that whoever would desire to be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. And that's absolutely true. It's true as much today as it was true when James wrote it. To be friendly with the world is to be an enemy with God. But the opposite is also true. <laughs> if we're going to be a friend of God, then the world is going to be our enemy. And we'll say, no, wait a minute. I'm not an enemy of the world. <laughs> I, no, that, that's not the case. That's not the way it goes. It's not that we are against them. It's that they turn against us. If the world is your friend, God is your enemy. But if God is your friend, the world is your enemy. And it's intriguing to me that the longest day, the longest day, the longest one-day battle that took place because God made the sun to stand still and the moon to stand still for the longest day was the day when they dealt with the counterattack against the Gibeonites once they made peace with God. So let's see then how the story plays out in verse 12, Joshua chapter 10. Then spake Joshua to the Lord in the day when the Lord delivered up the Amorites before the children of Israel. And he said in the sight of Israel, Son, stand thou still upon Gibeon, and thou moon in the valley of Ajalon. And the sun stood still, and the moon stayed until the people had avenged themselves upon their enemies. Is not this written in the book of Jasher? So the sun stood still in the midst of heaven and hastened not to go down about a whole day. And there was no day like that before it or after it that the Lord hearkened unto the voice of a man. For the Lord God fought for Israel. They hearkened unto the voice of Joshua. Now, while friendship then is, the, is with the world is, makes us the enemy of God and, and, and friendship with God makes us the enemy of the world, I, I'm glad John, 1 John chapter 4 and verse 4 is there for us because greater is he that is in you and me than he that is in the world. I'd rather be on the Lord's side fighting the devil than to be on the devil's side fighting God. How about you? Amen? I mean, that's the way that goes. We can see how that plays out. And our text demonstrates then three aspects of a good biblical divine response to this demonic counterattack that we've got to watch out for, not only in our own lives, but in the lives of others. First, we'll notice that response of the Gideonites, and we can sum that up very simply in verse 6, come up to us quickly and save us and help us. And so let's make this plain tonight, just very quickly for us. Uh, that is, when we find ourselves facing an, an attack, when we find ourselves in fighting a battle that we didn't expect to fight, uh, we've made some faith decision, whatever it is. Maybe tonight you're a new believer, or you know somebody who's a new believer. And you see that glorious decision that they have made. Warn them to expect opposition, but most importantly, encourage them to do what the Gideonites did. Ask for help. Ask for help. 
when you find yourself in trouble. Ask for help. Joshua didn't rebuke them. Children of Israel didn't rebuke them. God didn't rebuke them. They asked for help. It's one of the hardest things for us to do as God's people is to ask for help. No matter how badly we need it, we'll keep thinking, man, I just need to fight my way through this. Everybody else has got it tougher than I do. Or we buy into that lie that the devil tells us over and over and over again. Nobody will understand. Nobody will understand what you're going through. Well, if they knew what I was fighting, well, uh, they, they wouldn't understand. My personal doctor and good friend gave me some good advice long ago when he said, Rich, that which is most personal to us is that which is most universal. The thing that we think about ourselves, well, nobody else struggles like I do. <laughs> Almost everybody struggles like you do. Might not have exactly the same thing, but we all struggle with the same flesh. We've all got the same brain. We all struggle with the same weak spots. When they come up then, don't be afraid to ask for help. The Gibeonites did a good thing when they called for reinforcements. Jeremiah chapter 33 and verse 3, God says, Call unto me and I will answer thee. Show thee great and mighty things which thou knowest not. We don't have to struggle then through struggles and battles. We don't have to fight battles and fight them all alone. When we're facing the organized, powerful, and relentless forces of hell in a counterattack that wants to pull us back into the life Jesus Christ delivered us from, we need help. We need prayer support. We need the help and encouragement of God's people. James chapter 5 and verse 16 tells us, Confess your faults one to another and pray one for another that you may be healed. And isn't it interesting that that's where he put that context, that passage that we quote so many times. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. That's put in the context of confessing your faults one for another. Translate that, ask for help. Pray for one another that you may be healed. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man accomplishes a whole lot. James 5, 16. We call on God for help. We call on God's people for help. And then notice what God's people did. Verse 7. So Joshua ascended from Gilgal, he and all the people of war with him, and all the mighty men of valor. He didn't make that AI mistake that they'd made before and just take a few. No, he, he put all of his resources into this battle. He knew he was going to need them. And the Lord said unto Joshua, Fear them not, for I have delivered them into thine hand. There shall not a man of them stand before thee. Joshua therefore came unto them suddenly and went up from Gilgal all night. He marshaled his forces. He marched immediately, immediately to Gilgal. Immediately. 
There was no indication that they thought the Gibeonites were just second-class citizens worthy of a second-class response. No, they were people who had called upon the God of Israel for mercy. They had expressed their faith in Him. They were brought into the congregation of Israel as servants. We know that eventually, though, they're going to be numbered with the children of Israel. We saw that last week. It was a full response. It was an obedient response. God told them to respond, to go, and they did exactly what God commanded them to do. Interestingly, God gives us a very similar command in the New Testament. In Galatians chapter 6 and verse 1, it said, Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such an one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. Bear ye one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. When you see your brother overtaken then in a fault, when you see a brother or sister struggling in some area, and a lot of times we don't really know what's wrong, if we're honest, we don't. A lot of times we just see that they're gone. That's the only indication that we have as a church family that something is wrong in somebody's life. They used to be here. Now they're not. We see our brethren then overtaken in a fault. Something's wrong. Then when we see that, the Bible says, you which are spiritual, restore them. That is, we reach out to them in the spirit of meekness and self-control, considering ourselves, lest we also be tempted. We don't want to be drawn into somebody else's sin, and that can happen. But in the end, we bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the suggestions of Christ. No, the law of Christ is what Jesus expects of us. I'll tell you, as a church, we have to watch out for this. And again, we we watch out for it as people are, are newly saved in lives of new believers. When they make that new decision, when they come into the church family, maybe they don't know all that many people and we don't know them. Now, we ought to know them because they announced their name right up in front, and we should remember it, of course, forever, but we don't remember it, and then we're ashamed to ask them again, and we just need to get over it so that people can build relationships in our church family, and we can do what this passage tells us to. Watch out for one another. Bear one another's burdens. We can't do that effectively if we're not relating to one another well. It's something we need to watch out for as pastors and staff, and And we constantly need to evaluate how good of a job are we doing. And Sometimes we do pretty well, but I'll admit to you, there's times when people slip through the cracks and maybe they're gone for a month or two before we even notice it. And it's embarrassing. I wish I could come here every week and tell you who all was here and who all was gone. I can't even see half the faces in the balcony most of the time. I tell you, especially with that sun behind them glaring over here. And I think sometimes people are gone and they're here, and I think they're here and they're gone. I, I wish I was better. But I'm only one person, Bill, just one person. We, we need to watch out for one another more effectively and so fulfill the law of Christ. When they heard about what was going on in Gibeon, they moved immediately in obedience to what God told them to do. And we need to make that same response to what God tells us to do. And then it was obviously a very urgent response. You know, when people turn to God, remember that they think their battle is over, and it's not. We think their struggles are over, 
and it's not. They think uh, this is going to somehow take away all the difficulties that they were going through, through and it's not. Um, if they don't bond here in the church, it's very possible that they're going to go right back to their old friends and associates that they had before. And you know how that's going to turn out. They need new friends. Uh, they need to bond with God's people. And, and that's where we come in. If they had a battle with the flesh, the chances are they think it's going to be over in a day. And it's not. Remember the longest day? The longest day was the day when God dealt with the counterattack by the enemy. This battle sometimes takes a lot longer than we think. We'll get back to that in a moment. When we see a problem, then there's a need for an urgent response. And then what did God do? Well, verse 11, it came to pass as they fled from before Israel and were in the going down to Beth Horon that the Lord cast down great stones from heaven upon them unto Azekah, and they died. There were more which died with hailstones than they whom the children of Israel slew with the sword. And then spake Joshua to the Lord in the day when the Lord delivered up the Amorites before the children of Israel. And he said, that's when he said, and we've read this before, sun stand still, moon stand still. And of course it did for a whole day. These are two incredible miracles of God. And like any miracle, they absolutely defy the laws of physics. We know more about what a great miracle this was, probably than the people who saw it happen. Because we know so much about the way that the universe works. Now the Bible says these were hailstones, and they fell from heaven, and they killed the enemy. They fell from heaven and killed the enemy without killing the Israelite soldiers who were right there with them. Now, I don't know of a hailstorm anywhere that I've ever seen that would hail on my neighbor across the road and leave me alone, or that would hail on some of these folks over here that really need hailing on, but then my car would just be fine, you know. I, I, I don't get that kind of hail. Never seen that kind of hail. Hail falls indiscriminately when it falls. This was big enough to kill somebody. Did a little research this week just out of curiosity about hailstorms and hailstones and I wondered how many people had been killed by hailstones. Tragically, there was one not too long ago, a little three-month-old baby. His mom was carrying it. It was hit by a large hailstone, hit right in the head. Uh, had pictures of the mom and beat up on her shoulder. She, of course, was hitting her head, but uh, that little baby was killed. The last one in the United States of America killed by a hailstorm was 19-year-old back in the 70s who was killed in a hailstorm. A lot of folks have been injured. Where some of them have head injuries, brain injuries by large baseball-sized hail. Largest hail recorded in the United States of America was softball size, seven inches across, weighed about a pound and a half. That's a big hunk of hail. But even with softball-sized hail and hailing on people caught out in the open, it's rather unusual for people to be killed by hailstones. And again, there's no explanation for how God in heaven or how that hailstones would just indiscriminately fall and yet 
only the enemies of Israel would be killed and none of the soldiers would get hit. Now, listen, folks, this was no ordinary hailstorm. We can talk about supercells all we want to. Uh, God made these hailstones and he made them to fall and he caused them to fall on the enemies of Israel. And he killed, God killed, more of the armies of Israel's enemies than the armies of Israel did, which makes sense. Uh, we, don't, we don't have an explanation for how that happened. We don't. Defies the laws of physics. Defies anything that we understand about how hailstones are formed. and It's just not there. I heard somebody give a long explanation. He thought these were volcanic bombs that he, God caused a volcano to go off and he was raining down stuff. I, I don't see that. Bible called them hailstones. I'm just fine with that. I feel no compulsion whatsoever to explain how this happened. I'm perfectly saying, comfortable saying it defies the laws of physics. God did it. To God be the glory. He gave Israel a mighty victory by the use of a mighty miracle. But then there's that other one. And that is that God calls the sun to stand still and the moon to stand still so that it stayed whatever time it was, it stayed that time. And he particularly identifies the sun stayed right over here and you could look over that way kind of like we would look. Well, I was looking toward down and it was about there. And I was looking over here and the moon was about right there over this valley I mean, they spelled it out very plainly. The moon was right there. The sun was right there. And they stayed right there. So if it was 4 o'clock in the afternoon, it was 4 o'clock in the afternoon for a long, long time. Now, back in the 70s, there was a guy who wrote a book. And uh, he claimed to have worked with NASA, but he didn't really work with NASA. He was a contractor. And he claimed that NASA had done a bunch of compilations they were trying to figure out because they had to put satellites up there and all this stuff. And he said, man, they were doing that. And they came up with the idea, man, there's a day missing. He wrote a book about it. Some of you may have read it. Man, I've heard that preached from so many pulpits and taught in so many Sunday school classes. Well, NASA, man, they went looking for, a, there was a day missing. Y'all might have heard it. Let me tell you something tonight. There are absolutely no days missing. <laughs> They are all absolutely accounted for. All I can tell you for sure on the basis of the Word of God is that one of those days was a whole lot longer than any other day that there's ever been. Uh, NASA has repeatedly denied that they ever did such a thing. And they said we couldn't have done it even if we tried. Uh, one a physicist with NASA actually went so far as to write an article to debunk it. He said, if I handed you a clock that was stopped and tell, ask you how long it had been stopped, how could you tell me? There's no, you can tell me that it stopped. It stopped at such and such a time, but you wouldn't know whether that was been stopped an hour or been stopped. We have no way of computing how long something is stopped. So if the universe stopped... He said, there'd be no way for us to know how long it stayed. What you and I know is that the earth is revolving around the sun, and the earth is spinning around 20-something thousand miles an hour, spinning on its axis. The sun is actually fixed, and what causes the sun to move is the, is the circulation of the earth. We know that. They didn't know it back then in Joshua's day, but you and I do. 
Remember I told you, we know a whole lot more about how great of a miracle this was than they did. Because in order for the sun to stand still, the earth would have to stop. Now, if you guys that's taking physics know what happened. If you have something going 25,000 miles an hour and all of a sudden it stops, what's it going to do? It's going to blow to pieces. What's that going to do to our gravitational force? It's going to go wild. How did God do it? I don't have any idea how he did it. Any more than I have any idea how he could say light be and light became. You see, sometimes as Christians, we, we feel compelled almost to try to make scientific kind of explanations about what the Bible says. Uh, that's how the gap theory got started a few years ago, and I bought into that for a long time, and I, I finally figured out that I was a whole lot more comfortable just believing that God did it, and he did it just exactly like he said he did it. And I don't have to try to explain all the stuff and make scientific explanations on the basis of that. If, if I could make something happen tonight, I, I wish that I could make the scientists stop making faith statements. That's what evolution is, by the way. It takes a lot of faith to believe that the universe created itself and then created everything else. It takes a lot of faith to believe that inanimate matter can animate itself and make life happen. It takes a lot of faith to believe that. But a lot of people believe it. They believe it very strongly. From time to time, we need to remind ourselves that God asks us a question. What, what affiliation is there between light and darkness? What affiliation is there between Christ and Belial? We need to understand that the Bible is true. It stands. It has stood all of these many years. It will stand exactly as Jesus said. And then we see this tonight as one of the greatest miracles in Scripture, a great miracle that God performed at a very intriguing time. Two great, incredible miracles that God made to stop the counterattack against the Gibeah, people of Gibeah. Hmm. Job 38 and 22, God asked, Hast thou entered into the treasures of the snow? Or hast thou seen the treasures of the hail, which I have reserved against the time of trouble, against the day of battle and war? Just snow, just hail. But God says there's a treasure in them that I have reserved to use in the day of battle and of war. Y'all want to see how the God of heaven could bring our nation to its knees just using snow? You think he could? What about hail? Have you seen the treasures in the snow and in the hail? 
God has no problem making a miracle happen when He needs to, and there's no reason for us to muddy the water by trying to explain it. Let's call it what it is. It's a miracle of God. And the longest day, the most unique day in human history was set when the Gibeonites came under attack after they had trembled at the Word of God. Like them, then, we must learn tonight and remind ourselves that when we align ourselves with God and His will, we cast ourselves on His mercy, and we see other people do the same, we must expect the enemy to move to try to stop it. The battle with the world and the flesh, we think that it's over so quickly and and accomplished so easily. I've trusted in God, and I've been saved. Now, I'm not going to struggle with that anymore. I'll I'll be done with that and be through in a day. I've, I've seen some alcoholics over the course of my ministry have been saved. Praise God for every one of them. I, I like to see all kinds of sinners get saved. But, you know, alcoholic, when they get saved, that's a big deal. It is. They think sometimes that they're going to be immediately delivered from the bottle. And I can tell you, I've heard some testimonies. I heard a man who claimed himself he was an alcoholic. And he said, I wasn't saved. I was saved. And from that day to this day, he said, I've never craved a drink of alcohol. That was his testimony. Was it true? All I can tell you, that was his testimony. If that was true, and I have no reason to doubt that it wasn't, then I can tell you that he experienced a true miracle of God. Because most of the time when an alcoholic gets saved, you know what you've got? You've got a saved alcoholic. And they're just one drink away from being right back in the same mess. You see, we think the battles with the flesh all go away, but they don't. They're still there. They're still real. And it usually takes longer to win that battle than we thought. Remember, this is the longest day. I think God put it there for a reason so that we'd understand that dealing with that counterattack from the flesh and the enemy when we've made a faith decision with God is probably going to take longer than we thought. God intervenes once we are engaged in that battle, but not always as spectacularly as we would like. Once that alcoholic gets saved, it'd be nice if God would drop a hailstone on the head of anybody who came up to him and offered him a drink. But it doesn't always work that way, does it? But the power of God is always required in this battle, and I've got good news for you. It is always available. But as God's people, we need to really be serious about how urgent this battle is. And we see new people saved, people come to the church, people who are trying to make that faith decision, people who are getting right. Maybe somebody we've been praying for for a long time and suddenly they make a faith decision. Oh, how we need to see that. Because the moment they've made that faith decision, the flesh is going to be used by the enemy to launch a counterattack. Oh, we need to look at that. We don't need to say, well, we've got that. When that battle is over, no, that battle has just begun. God help us as his people to recognize that and respond with urgency when we see our brother overtaken in a fault. Maybe tonight it's your struggle. I want you to know you're not alone. Every saved person in this building 
struggles with something. The writer of the book of Hebrews called it the sin, the sin that does so easily beset us. I'm not going to start naming sins tonight. There's too many of them. Uh, we all know them, and we know ours too well. God knows it too. When we're struggling, don't be afraid to ask for help. God's people love you, and we'll help you. Let's stand together, please.